Here we go. Okay, now, what we're doing is we're actually looking at the book of Titus over three weeks. And I'm sure that when you read a, a short letter like this, when you read a, a short letter like the length of the book of Titus, like the letter to Titus, whoops. Uh, let's get... Oh, goodness. Um, when you do this uh, for yourself, you don't chop it up and read a short letter over three weeks. Uh, I'm pretty sure that we don't do that. Uh, and I'm sure Paul didn't either. Uh, and what's more is that over the next uh, couple of weeks, we're not even going to keep Titus together in terms of the way that Paul has written it. And what I want to do now, just to start off with, is to tell you what the structure of Titus is like and what we're actually doing. Uh, it's sort of like a big map. Uh, and I'm sorry if this makes you hungry or I'm sorry if it makes you repulsed, but look, it, it's, it's like a big map. Let me show you what I mean. Last week, we looked at chapter 1 of the book of Titus. One of the things that we looked at was the great gospel chain reaction. We looked at the incredible thing that God did when he revealed the truth. The truth that actually leads to godliness. And so Paul gave Titus a task. His task was to appoint elders who were going to keep that truth and making sure that that was going to be transmitted from one generation to the next in the way that they spoke and in the way that they lived it out. But not only was it in their uh, words, it was also in their actions as well. And that was contrasted with a group of disobedient people or false teachers. Now what's left in the book of Titus, it's like a big map. You, you'll get a section on godliness, so in chapters 2, verses 1 to 10, the bun, it, it's all about godliness. And we're actually missing verses 9 and 10 in your handout there. So you might actually need to get out your Bible as well. Uh, the next section from verses 11 to 15 is about the truth. And then verses 1 to 2 of chapter 3 is about godliness. Uh, chapters 3 to 8 is about the truth again. And then the way that the book of Titus finishes is more encouragement to godliness in verses 9 to 15 of chapter 3. And what we're going to do is that this week, we're going to deconstruct the big map, right? We're going to look at the bun, we're going to look at the bread part of, of Titus, and next week we're going to look at the filling, we're going to look at the truth. And the way that uh, Paul actually does that um, is actually does it um, in, in terms of what we call a household code. But he actually does it as a direct continuation of what we did last week. So although we're taking out the bread, taking out the bun, it's still not out of context. So have a look at it. Last week, uh, we read in chapter 1, verse 9, uh, an elder, he, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And this week, as we look at chapter 1, it's a direct continuation. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. So almost, uh, verses 10 to, to, to 15, 10 to the end of the chapter, is really an interruption of that thought. Here is this sound doctrine that has been revealed, and this is what you're to do, to keep on teaching. And how um, Titus is to do it is actually to go through different members of the household, uh, household code, uh, work his way through a household. Uh, there are actually several household codes in the New Testament. Uh, you get it places like here in Titus. You get it in places like Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3 and Colossians 3. In fact, household codes are actually common. They actually exist outside of the New Testament as well in the first century. But what it does is it actually covers the basic relationships which will capture everybody. That's why he does it. He goes through a household because everybody has to be part of this household, has to be part of this relationship. In fact, 
you've got to work really hard at being none of these people. So you've got to be working at neither being young nor old, uh, you've got to be orphaned, you've got to be uh, unmarried, self-employed, uh, stateless, churchless. If you're in that category, then maybe this doesn't apply to you. Uh, in fact, it does to, uh, speak to everybody. Uh, but then the problem is, as you think about these groups of people that we're going to look at in chapters 2 and 3, does it mean that there's a different sort of godliness for different groups of people? No, I don't think Paul is saying that to Titus. That is, there is the same sort of godliness. Ultimately, godliness is the same. Ultimately, what the heart of godliness is, is to think, is to act, and is to speak in a way that brings honour to God. To be Christ-like, really. That's what godliness means. And godliness is going to be the same for different groups. In fact, if you scan your eyes down that list in chapters 2, you'll see words like likewise and similarly. And you'll see that for older people to teach the younger people, they've got to take on the characteristic of younger people. And you'll see that lots of those terms travel across lots of different groups. So there are lots of similarities. We're not going to just break up into different groups so that old men up the top corner here, young women down here, young men up the top. That doesn't work. Uh, Titus wrote this letter so that everybody can eavesdrop into what's going on for everyone else. So there's lots of similarities. But there are differences as well. I think we live in a world where we try to make everything the same. We try to blur differences. But Paul is saying, not that godliness is different for different groups of people, but probably the particular aspects of ungodliness is different. And so he's going to address each of these in turn. We know that people are different. We know that there are differences between older people and younger people and between men and women. You know all those jokes that fly around? I got this as an email a while ago. Uh, and it says this. This is the difference between men and women. Uh, a man has five items in his bathroom. A toothbrush, shaving cream, razor, a bar of soap and a towel stolen from some hotel somewhere. Uh, the average number of items in a typical woman's bathroom is 337. A man would not be able to identify most of the names. Uh, Sharon forwarded me another email the other day uh, saying why women are glad to be women. Here's a cure from that. Uh, women are glad to be women because we know it's better to call the plumber for $75 instead of spending $4,780 to fix it ourselves. Uh, uh, women are glad to be women because we can peel the vegetables and talk to people at the same time. Uh, this is what I like the best because it's true. Uh, women are glad to be women because we can watch the television without holding the remote control. <laughs> there are lots of similarities and there are lots of differences. The similarities in godliness is that we're all to speak, act, love in a way that Jesus does. That's what godliness is. It's the same. But there are differences in terms of ungodliness, and Paul tells Titus you need to address these things. So let's look at different groups. Uh, the first group, older men. Right? Lots of things said about older men in verse 2. They're, to be, uh, they're taught to be uh, temperate, to be worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and endurance. Now, once again, I need to remind you, we don't have time in, in a talk like this to try to cover everything. Uh, I think I tried to do that in the Tuesday talk and failed miserably. Right? So I'm going to spare you from that. But what I want to do is highlight certain things from certain groups of people and certain ways that we can uh, learn to help understand the scriptures a little bit better. So, for example, look here that the older men are taught to be, uh, are to be, taught to be uh, temperate. That is, they have to be restrained in their behaviour, especially in relation to alcohol. That's what temperance means. 
That's what being temperate there means. It's about sobriety. But, notice there, it's not about abstinence. Paul isn't saying to Titus, this is what you're to teach the older men, that they're to abstain from alcohol. It actually doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't teach abstinence from alcohol. It actually teaches against self, uh, losing self-control through alcohol, about drunkenness. That's a no-no. But it's not abstinence. You see, God made uh, wine to make glad the hearts of men, it says in Psalm 104. And Jesus made 180 gallons of, of wine at a wedding after the people already drunk the place dry. Right? You can hardly say that God is against alcohol. Now, that doesn't mean I'm a closet you know, drinker or something like that. I actually don't drink. I'm an abstainer. I don't drink. I don't like the taste of alcohol and I don't drink for social reasons. But I can't tell you not to drink because this is what the Bible says. Don't drink for other reasons, if that's appropriate. But really, the command here is to not get drunk. So as you're doing this in your small group, as you're looking through the text, make sure you read what the words say. Don't go further than what the text says. It says also older men are to be worthy of respect, self-controlled, uh, which we're going to look at later on, sound in faith, in love and endurance. Let's go on to the older women. It says there, once again, this word starts off, likewise. Oh. There's similarities there. And older women are to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderous, which we'll look at later. But also what they say there, what, what uh, uh, Titus is ta taught to teach them, is that they're to teach what is good, to train the younger women, to teach. Can you see that there? I think once again, as we come to this text, it's also helpful to look at other parts of the Bible. But some people look at other bits of the Bible and say, well, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that women are not to teach. Does that mean Paul is contradicting himself? That there are different things going on? What's, what's Paul going on? Uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 2, women don't teach. And it says here, women to teach. Well, you've got to, once again, read things in context. As you come to this text in your small groups, use other bits of, of the Bible. Look at other bits, but also read them in context as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach. Yes, that's right. But that's just a snippet of a verse. It sounds like he's contradicting himself. But it actually says, I permit no women to teach and have authority. It's authoritative teaching that Paul is condemning the, the women up there. It's about teaching in, in right relationships. So there's just another hint. Yes, read it and read it carefully. Read it in context and read it with other parts of the Bible. So what are the older women to train the younger women? And we've got a few things here, and this is hard. And it's hard to do this part because there's some things that are quite unpopular here. Uh, the first thing that younger, uh, younger women are to be trained in by the older women is to love their husbands and children to love their husbands and children. You sort of think, well, isn't that natural? You know, love is just one of those natural things. You fall into love and those, you know, uh, emotions just take you on to all sorts of places. You start watching rugby when you previously hated rugby and, and there's all sorts of stuff that happens when you fall in love. Isn't it just natural? You remember the historical context in which this was written as well. Yes, well, we have the great privilege of choosing our lifelong partners. Back in the first century, most likely the person that you marry was chosen for you by your parents or someone else. <coughs> and in that context, the young women were, to taught, were taught to love their husbands. And that can be difficult sometimes, I think, when those emotions don't go, don't go with it. 
But that's nothing compared with loving a child, I think. I've got young children. I've known what it's like. You know, at least with a husband, so Sharon tells me anyway, you've got some chance of reasoning, pleading, appealing, manipulating, changing, you know, somehow affecting or influences what they think. But with a child, there is no chance whatsoever. Right? Absolutely none. The child is totally and absolutely unreasonable. When it screams, you have to come. The fact that you don't feel like coming, the fact that it's inconvenient for you at the time, the fact that you're asleep and, and, and half asleep at the moment and you wish you had more sleep, it doesn't matter. When it wants to be fed, it wants feeding right there and there. And it'll keep on insisting on it until you do something about it. And it'll continue to do so. And to continue to love such a monster, such a tyrant, <laughs> such a dictator, it's actually really difficult to care for it. It's hard. To give yourself to this screaming bundle of nuisance that has arrived, that you thought you would like while you were single at university. <laughs> to train the younger women, to tra train all parents actually to love their children, is actually one of those vital tasks that's so often uh, neglected. I remember when I was at university, I used to say, oh man, those young marrieds with kids, they're so slack. They always turn up late to church and they miss out every so often. They miss out weeks in church. They hardly ever come anymore. Can I say, it's just hard work. And for those of you who experience uh, family members and other family members who've got preschoolers, uh, kids that just can't look after themselves, <coughs> it's really hard work. And to have this incredible ministry where older women, older people teach younger women and younger parents to love their children is so important. Did you know the most recent national figures from the Australian Institute of Health, uh, Health and Welfare indicate that in Australia during 2007 to 2008 there were 317,526 reports of suspected child abuse and neglect <coughs> made to state and territory authorities. And I don't think that includes Northern Territories. It's disastrous, the abuse of young children. And you probably don't see it much because you come from good families. But to be able to teach Young parents to love their children, to care for them, is so vital. For those of you who do humanities and education, you know how important those early years are. The way that kids are shaped then influences them for a lifetime. But the other thing I want to finish off by saying, though, is that even though you mightn't feel maternal instinct or parental instinct at now, it's also a learnable thing. That's a great hope for us. Yes, older women are the trained young women, but this thing of loving children, caring for them, loving husbands, it's learnable as well. But it also says there that they're to be self-controlled. Uh, pure there is, is a sense of pure in, in sexual connotations, to be chaste, uh, to be uncontaminated. And that is so difficult, I think, in our day and age. Uh, I've got a seven-year-old daughter going on to 17, I'm sure. Uh, last Christmas, she wanted makeup and shoes for Christmas <laughs> at the ripe old age of, of just turning seven. That's just crazy. And, and before she went to school, this is in preschool, her first year of preschool, just started interacting with other people. She's, um, I remember asking Anastasia, what would you like for your birthday? And she goes, and this is before she could even you know, know what things are really. She goes, I want one of those bags with a girl in the front that goes like this. Right? The Bratz bags. It's, I don't know where she got it from, but that's the images that she's been attracted to at such a young age. 
And I think it's harder for you. We live in sexually permissive society. We live in a sexed up society. And to appear prudish or outdated, it's difficult. We don't want to appear prudish, outdated, irrelevant, old-fashioned. It's a dinosaur if you say that you're a virgin at 18 years old, isn't it? And sometimes we're told by leaders outside the church and also sometimes inside the church, it's a cruel thing of God to expect young men and women to remain chaste until marriage. But God's standards of sexual purity are absolute today as they were in the first century. No sex before marriage and faithfulness to one partner within marriage. That's what it's about. Not because God is a cosmic killjoy or something like that. Because he knows and his desire for faithful monogamy is a thing that works best. We know that that's true. You can go into a web and look at some of the government papers uh, from the Family Institute. <coughs> and you can see some of the references there where it says children have better outcomes when parents stay together. You can say that. It also says that young women are to be busy at home. And that sounds like, you know, people don't put up their feet or they never rest or something like that. Probably a better translation is to be a homemaker rather than just being busy at home or something like that. And that doesn't mean that you can't do anything else. There are actually no biblical injunctions to say that a married woman cannot work outside of home. It doesn't say that. Have a look at the woman in Proverbs chapter 31. She does all sorts of amazing things has real estate deals, this competent woman, buying and selling goods, travelling afar, to do all sorts of things, to give wise advice. But I think there are clear responsibilities, and under normal circumstances of a wife and mother, she is to make home a first priority. In their, if there are conflicting demands, then home must come first. The next one is a real doozy. It says there, to be subject to their husbands. Now, I wish I was speaking faster and I could just skip over this, but it's probably important to deal with it. It's, it's controversial, as I said before, it's unpopular, it's hard to talk about. But you know what? Paul, in another passage, actually ups the ante. It's not just an optional extra, it's part of being Christian. Have a look at it with me. It's in Ephesians chapter 5. It says this. Uh, it's in this section in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, which says that you've got to be careful how you live. Living wisely, not as unwise. And he says there, don't be filled with alcoholic spirit, because that just leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 19, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. New paragraph. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it sounds like there, there's a whole lot of different commands that's going on. Being a little bit closer to the Greek, which a longer sentence, a bit more different, a bit more difficult, is this sentence, which has main verbs and what we call participles. Now, if I say participle, most of you go, huh? Because most of us never did grammar. I didn't either. I only learned English grammar because I was doing a foreign language, funnily enough. And then I started actually doing grammar. But it's important to know what main verbs are and what participles are. Because participles, ing words, words like singing, dancing, clapping, all that sort of stuff, describe an action or describe a person. So, for example, if I say, Richard Glover gives me $100 clapping and singing along the way, right? Um, <laughs> what I get is not the joyful clapping and singing. Yes, that's just about, just in the background, really. I get the 100 bucks, right? That's what's going on. Richard Glover gives Michael Klein 
$100 clapping and singing along the way. Have a look at this sentence uh, in the English Standard Version. What does it say? Be filled with the Spirit. How are you to be filled with the Spirit? Addressing one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. This is not an optional extra. If you want to be a Christian person, be filled with the Spirit, then submission is part of your makeup. And in fact, in Ephesians, it talks about submission in all sorts of circumstances, in all situations. Here, we're talking about submission of wives to husbands. Not boyfriends to girlfriends, not men to women, but wives to husbands here. And the first thing that we need to do as we deal with this in more detail is to clear away some of the dead wood, I think. Firstly, sometimes we get mixed up submission uh, in terms of importance or unimportance. If you submit to someone, then you must be less important. And I think we get caught up in the social pecking order of things. We live in a world where lawyers are better than garbage collectors, doctors are better than plumbers or something like that. No, that's completely foreign to Paul. As you look back in, in Ephesians, you see that everyone, all Christians, are blessed with every spiritual blessing. The second confusion comes with superiority or inferiority in terms of submission. But it's not that at all. God thinks in radically different categories. You know what? God, in the way he is and the way that he designed the world, actually conveys the concept of submission. As we look at the person of Jesus at annual conference this year, you'll be looking at the concept of the Trinity. God the Father is God, is he not? God the Son is God, is he not? God the Holy Spirit is God, is he not? They're all equally God. And yet there's an incredible order and a mutual love relationship within the Godhead so that Jesus submits to God the Father. So that the Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus, sent by the Father, never the other way around. In fact, submission is the very essence of behaviour, really. You remember Jesus, who is in the very nature God, very nature equal with God, who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, not counting equality with God something to be grasped. He was Jesus, not grasping for equality, but humbling himself for obedience. Submission is actually a very Christian thing to do. And here, it's about a wife submitting to a husband. Now, it's also really difficult to talk about what it looks like because I think how it, what it looks like will be very different in different um, uh, marriage relationships. But here are some pointers that I found in our marriage that's important. Something about submission is, I, I don't think, not stepping in when you say something is wrong. And it, it would be not putting the person that you're trying to submit under down. It, it's not making fun of them, uh, particularly in front of other people, I think. <coughs> and in this situation, for a wife uh, to a husband, particularly in front of children, it means not nagging. I think that's a sign of resistance of submission, actually. But this is what it is. And I know it's hard to submit. Godliness is hard, but just because it's hard doesn't mean you don't do it. This whole section is so countercultural, isn't it? And I hate it when when terms are used like, you know, she's just a housewife. 
My wife, Sharon, is a housewife. But we've got to stamp out that word, that just be. People like Sharon are staying at home to love the children, to love the husband. And I think she's doing one of the greatest things that could be done for anybody. And I must say, at an enormous sacrifice to herself. The last thing that she needs is to be put down by everybody um, for making such a sacrifice for caring for other people. My wife is a trained physiotherapist. She used to work at one of the, uh, as one of the head physios in, in the brain injury unit at Westmead Hospital. She now looks after our beautiful children and trains them in godliness and supports me in my ministry and does marvellous things in teaching the scriptures at school, at Sunday school. We need to support and help and encourage women who make such a choice because it's true to the gospel itself, I think. It's a good thing that older women are to train young women to do this. It needs encouragement. Let me talk about uh, the young men. Uh, this is a concept that's actually been talked about uh, a few times already, um, but we've uh, missed uh, in the past. Um, but the whole concept of self-control has been talked about in terms of the elders back in chapter 1, verse 8. It's been talked about in terms of the older men in chapter 2, verse 2. It's been talked about in terms of young women in chapter 2, verse 5. And in fact, next week, as we look at verse 12 of chapter 2, it's for everyone. Uh, the whole concept of self-control has to do with the head, actually. Uh, the word has the word mind in it. The emphasis is on the mind. And it's talking about a person who knows the truth, who's strong-minded. One who's so strong-minded, who's so committed to the truth, who's strong-minded in the good sense, that his mind actually controls the behaviour, that their mind controls behaviour. We're not talking about behaviour that gets tossed around by just the context that you happen to be. We're not talking about the person who just does whatever the temptation is at present. They're not the person who just responds to their passions. They're strong-minded. They're committed to the truth that leads to the godliness, and so they'll direct their life by their godliness, uh, by their knowledge of, of true doctrine, of the truth. And this is particularly for young men. If you're a facetious person, you'd be saying there's only one command to young men because that's all they can take in. Uh, but I don't think that's true. I just think that this is... This is, this is a particular problem for young men, I think. Too much healthy blood coursing through the veins and too little between the ears sometimes, <coughs> as they constantly do stupid things. Young men are just impetuous. I was driving the other days uh, at the right speed and some guy just <laughs> overtook me on the left-hand lane, in the bus lane, knocked over a, a, a cyclist, glad he wasn't killed, pulled in front of me, slammed on the brakes, and I almost re rear-ended him. And it's a miracle that the cyclist is still alive and that my car is okay. It's just crazy, all for the sake of saving a minute or something like that. Young men often lose self-control, not just sexual matters, which might be implied to you, but in all sorts of things. And the great encouragement here is men, think before you act. Be a little bit more intentional. Remind yourself of the truth. And especially here, as Titus is supposed to give his example, I think it's got to do with teaching, with integrity and seriousness and with soundness of speech, it goes on. I think it says, Titus, you're a young man and you ought to set them an example of what it is to teach in seriousness, 
Because, you know, this is another thing I, I see about young men often when they teach. No self-control whatsoever. Young men don't want to settle down on what's true, what's right, what's important, what's valuable. They tend to sound off and big note themselves, <coughs> don't they? They like to brag and exaggerate. They like to lose their self-control. They're interested in making an impression by what they say, an impression of how important they are, what they know, where they've been, what they've done, rather than teaching and helping someone out. Be careful that you don't lose self-control in your teaching. But it's all part of life, an example as well. Throughout this letter, Paul has been saying, love what is good, know what is good, teach what is good, now set an example, do what is good. Young men, you're supposed to be doing so good, so much good, that people can live off that. People can see that example and model what it is to be a Christian, to be a person who knows the truth that leads to godliness. One of my youth fellowship leaders used to say many years ago, be so busy doing the good that you don't have time for doing the bad. Have you set out in your life intentionally doing good? To love and care for people. Do that. <coughs> I don't have much time left, but let's go on to the next group. It talks about slaves. Uh, be subject to your masters in everything. Try to please them. Not to talk back to them. Not to steal from them. Show that they can be fully trusted. That's what they're to do. Now, uh, we don't have time to go into all the details, uh, but notice there uh, that, that, that there's a, a clause there, so then. Uh, we, we've actually seen this earlier on, if you've been paying careful attention to the text. In verse 5, in younger women, so that no one will malign the word of God. To the younger men, in verse 8, so that those who oppose you might be ashamed and that they have nothing bad to say. And slaves here, verse 10, so then it makes the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Our action actually does something. Yes, it's right and godly, but it has consequences. You don't live the godly life, God's word becomes malign. People say awful things about it. They say, hypocrite, this is terrible. You live according to the, the truth, then it'll actually adorn God's word. Not to make it you know, better, to change it or something like that. But it becomes really attractive. Jesus says, by your love you will know that they are my disciples. Well, citizens there are taught not to slander. Uh, slander is one of those other things that's really important as well. And I think often, as in Christians, especially when we're mature Christians, we don't tend to do it on purpose. We don't want to do it. But sometimes I think we're not very careful in our language, in our speech. As we want to care for people, as we get conversational, especially in situations like when we want to share prayer points and things like that. We go from sharing prayer points, genuine concern, to gossip, which can sometimes lead to slander. Be careful, friends. Be careful about your words. And in the congregation there, it says, avoid foolish controversies, warn divisive people, devote yourself to what is doing what is good in order to provide for people. It's all about unity there. And, and I think one of the things I learned from a passage like the Household Code <coughs> is that we need to work really hard to keep unity. You know, the command about older women training younger women it's probably one of the least obeyed commands in our modern churches, I think. And I think it's one of those least obeyed commands because we don't have relationships with older women with younger women, older men with younger men. We tend to be so segmented, so segregated, that we don't have those relationships. And what I'm saying is, hey, be careful about that. 
Yes, it's great splitting off so that we can do ministry well amongst young people, amongst older people, amongst families, amongst all sorts of things. That's fantastic. But work at keeping those intergenerational and intergroup relationships as well. Don't be divisive. And also, it might be implied there that we've got to be careful about intergender relationships as well. Notice it's not Titus who teaches the young women. It's the, uh, Titus who teaches the older women to teach the younger women. Be careful about how you do those sort of things. Now, I don't think it's that clear from the text, but it's probably one of those wisdom things that you can draw from it. But what are we to say about this household code? This household code is what's in accordance with godliness. What is in accord with it? I had the great pleasure last weekend of going to the science faculty weekend away. It was a wonderful weekend away. And the great theme of the science weekend away was Lord of the Rings. And one of the things that they did on Saturday night was a dress-up thing, right? Lord of the Rings. Now, I didn't tell the committee this. I hate dressing up. I hate it. I'm phobic about dressing up. Um, and it all stems from when I was at university, when I was keen on the girl, and, um, and uh, I, I got to know her really, really well and, and got to know her loves and, and likes and dislikes and all that sort of stuff. And she always used to talk about you know, having this wonderful party where everybody would dressed up in superheroes and the sort of events that would happen that night. And it's fantastic, right? So I turned up to a 21st and Spider-Man suit. I never looked at the invite, which says formal. Opens the door, you know, and it's, it's not good. It's not good when you're inappropriately dressed. It's not good at all. When you're dressed in your shorts and thongs and t-shirts or whatever at a formal gathering, or when you're at a formal gathering at something that's casual, it just doesn't fit. It clashes. It's almost like when we were first married, Sharon used to say, Michael, you're not going out looking like that, are you? Um, but there's certain situations where clothes are appropriate, certain clothes are appropriate for certain situations. And so as Paul's saying, this is what's in accord with godliness. This is what's in accord with sound doctrine, this godliness. If you know the truth, if you know what is true, if you know this revealed truth from God, then here's the clothing that fits. Get rid of those other clothes. It's daddy. It's the wrong situation. It's the wrong context. Cast them aside. Give them away. Here is a set of clothes in this family household, in this household code, which is going to suit the person that you are. And you know what? It's going to be popular and unpopular. The world will recognise that it's good and right. It loves families, really. It sees that it works best. But when you suggest that they ought to do it, they'll hate you for it. They'll commend you for doing it, but they'll hate you if you imply that they should do it. They know it's right, but they can't go on and do it. It's going to be unpopular and popular. But friends, we're not to choose our clothes, we're not to change, choose our godliness in terms of popularity. You know, um, there used to be a, a warden of a college at University of New South Wales called New College, Dr Babbage. His famous line always used to be, even a dead dog can swim against the current, that can go with the tide, can swim with the current. That's true, isn't it? Anybody can go with the flow. That's easy. You know, even a dead dog can do that. When you go against the tide, when you go against the current, it only shows that you're alive. It shows that you're concerned about something. And here we are, 
against the world, against their intent, but we still need to live godly lives. But there's going to be a motive for doing that. We're not just a masochist society or something like that. If you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you grasp the grace of God of Jesus Christ, you'll want to live as a Jesus person. You'll want to be zealous for what he wants. You'll try to work out what it is to be good and do it. If you don't know, well, when you look at something like this, you think, well, that doesn't square with the world. That doesn't square with Cleo or Cosmo or men's health or whatever it is. The grace of God and the salvation of Jesus is fundamental in godliness. And that's what we're going to look at next week. And if you know it, you'll want to hear about it, won't you? Because this is the thing that's going to revolutionise your life. This is the truth that will lead to godliness. And if you know that truth, you'll want to have your friends hear about it as well. So bring them along. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for just giving us a little glimpse into what godliness looks like. But Father, the difficult thing is not just knowing it, but doing it. Father, we pray that you give us the courage to swim against the tide, to live godly lives. Father, that you pour your spirit into us so that we live outstanding godly lives. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Friends, uh, afternoon tea is going to be outside.